right, go to Jonah chapter 2. Grateful for that Stu was able to come last week and continue in the process of going through Jonah. Uh, I might repeat a couple of the things he said because I don't know what he said. And, uh, and I sort of fudged on my text. Uh, I kind of snuck into verse 7 a little bit. So um, it'll all hopefully make sense. But I'm going to read all of chapter 2 for us. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over to take my life, over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord." And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up out onto dry land. Let's pray. Father, uh, help me to proclaim your testimony with uh, simplicity this morning. Uh, Help me to know Christ and Him crucified so that your people might know Him more completely. Uh, Demonstrate your power through the Spirit so that our faith will not rest upon the wisdom of men, but rather the power of God. In Jesus' name, amen. I suppose if someone was turning the life of John Newton into a miniseries, what they would have done is sort of uh, had that break, you know, at, at the end of the storm, leaving you in sort of the, the, the question of what happens next. As this, uh, this the, the ship, the Greyhound, that uh, John Newton was a passenger on, has now been crippled by the storm. There's a hole in the boat, and then they cannot sail. The food and the water have been swept over the side by the waves, and they are in deep peril. A ship without a radio, remind you, because this is the 19th century. No radio to call for help. No signal flares to shoot into the sky. A ship adrift without food or water. And it seemed like a very desperate situation. But in the midst of this desperate situation, uh, God was not absent, but in fact God was very present in the midst of it. He was stirring up 
within the soul of the relatively young John Newton to think about his life, to think about his former life when his mother was alive, to remember Christ and Him crucified. God was at work in the very blasphemous John Newton. Our big idea this morning is that salvation is found only in Christ by grace through faith. First, let us consider that in Christ, God is mercifully disposed to His people. Indeed, it's because of Christ that God is mercifully disposed to His people. Jonah here is experiencing what Luther called God's merciful wrath and what I have been calling God's redemptive wrath. He's experiencing this in the belly of the whale or the fish, whatever you want to call it. And it is there in the, 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 the confines of this stomach and all that happens in a stomach that Jonah finally begins to pray. Remember, he didn't pray when he got the call to go to Nineveh. He didn't say, Lord, I don't understand. Lord, I, I'm not, you know, help me to figure this out. Help me to trust you that what you're doing is right. He didn't pray then. He didn't pray as he made his way down uh, to the, sh- the shore to pick up a ship in Joppa. He didn't pray when the storm began. He didn't pray when everyone else was calling upon their gods. He didn't pray when the, the helmsman woke him up and said, Call upon your God. Jonah wasn't praying. But now that Jonah has been tossed overboard by his own command, so to speak, Now that God has appointed the fish to swallow him and he is confined in the belly of the fish, he finally begins to pray. But the irony continues. Because we might expect Jonah to pray a prayer of confession. Or perhaps a lament. Why has this happened to me? But Jonah prays what is typically known as a prayer of thanksgiving. Even more ironically, Jonah's still in the belly of the whale. He's giving thanks that he is now being digested by a large seagoing mammal. We see in his prayer that he felt cast away into the deep, that he felt driven away from God's presence, the very presence that Jonah fled from, adding to the irony of this entire chapter. He feels banished. He feels near death. In fact, in verse 7, he says, My life was fainting away. It was escaping his grasp. It was disappearing from him. He had gotten his wish. He had been hurled into the sea, but being hurled into the sea was apparently not all that he wanted it to be. Tim Keller notes, sometimes God seems to be killing us when He's actually saving us. And that's exactly what Jonah is experiencing here in the belly of the whale. It seems as though God is killing him when in reality God is saving him. And you 
can often have that very similar experience. God is actually working to save you, but it feels like you're going to die. As it says in Hebrews 12, uh, all hardship is painful at the time. Discipline is meant to be understood, <clears throat> or rather, hardship is meant to be understood as discipline. And when we discipline our children, they, they act sometimes, right children? And, and adults, you did this when you were children too, so don't worry. You acted like you were going to die, that what your parents were doing to you was the end of the universe, and that's all coming down. And that's sort of how Jonah felt, even though he uh, wasn't having a, necessarily a tantrum on the floor, but that's because he couldn't move. He feels like he's dying. And it is there that we see that God is in control of His circumstances, just as God is in control of our circumstances. Because the storm became because God hurled the wind and He's in the belly of the whale because God sent the fish. But we also have to recognize that He's present with us in the midst of those circumstances. He's not just ordaining them, but He's with us in them. We are not a science experiment. We are not bugs in a jar with a 10-year-old boy looking at them and being curious as to what the bug will do next. But God is with us in the midst of our circumstances. Now, that's hard to believe. That's hard to believe when you feel like God is killing you. It's hard to believe because the world, the flesh, and the devil all interpret our circumstances as if God is trying to kill us. They lie to us. As if our perception was in fact reality. That's not always the case. God does His deepest work within us in the darkest places, in the places that we fear most. In my years of life, in my years of pastoral ministry, I don't think I've ever heard someone say, Yay, I'm going to surgery. Unless it was that bad. Okay. God is like a surgeon who's going to do painful work upon you in order to save your life, but the process does not sound pleasant. It does not sound safe. It does not sound like one you want to endure. But into the darkness we sometimes must go. For your kids, there are times when we must face our fears. When we, like Luke Skywalker, must go into the cave at Dagobah and face that fear that we too will become the enemy that we dread. So God does His deepest work in us in the dark places that we fear. And it's there as His life was fainting away that Jonah says, I remembered the Lord. 
And that just usually this is used in reference to God. God remembers his people, which is a signal that he's about to act in the keeping of his covenant promises. But here it's Jonah remembering the Lord because he's going to act in keeping with his covenant promises. He remembered that the Lord had made provision for sin in order to bring us back in our rebellion. Perhaps he was much like John Newton sitting on that boat adrift on the sea, hearing the voices of the other people, knowing that they think you're the reason they're in this mess. The world and the flesh condemning him, but there in the midst is the the words of his mother who pointed him to Christ saying, there can be forgiveness, there can be mercy, there can be grace. Jonah is discovering firsthand the reality of Psalm 139, verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Because that's where he believes he is. His bed is in Sheol, in the grave. He's got the the seaweed covering his face as if it were death clothes in in a tomb. And God is there. There is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. And so, his prayer rises from Sheol. It it can't make it to the temple in Jerusalem. He can't speak that loud, especially since he's, you know, underwater and in the belly of a fish. The point really is is that it, it reaches the heavenly palace, the heavenly temple, that even though he's confined in the fish and he, he doesn't know where he is, he doesn't know where to look to see the temple as they were supposed to when they were crying out for mercy, when they realized they'd gone astray and been exiled, even though he can't do any of that, God hears his prayer. The cry darkness is not unheard when God has set His love upon you. We remember, or we ought to remember, that Christ brings us near. That Christ is the One who grants us access to the Father's ear in prayer. That Christ is the One who makes us beloved sons despite our sin, that because of Christ and His his death on the cross, God is in fact mercifully disposed towards His people, though they at times may be faithless, like Jonah. And so if you're guilty and afraid because this week you've gone astray, you will always find a warm welcome with the Father when you return in repentance. Secondly, counterfeit gods rob us of life in Christ. Jonah comes about as close as you can, so to speak, to making a confession without actually making a confession. He seems to reveal just how it is he nearly destroyed himself because he says those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That's a long sentence. 
I prefer the uh, 1984 NIV because that's the one I memorized. And that goes something like this. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That's a powerful statement. When we stop and think about it. That there's grace that is offered, there's steadfast love that is offered, and it could be forsaken when we cling or pay regard to worthless idols or counterfeit gods. You see, we who have read chapter 1 should know that the many gods of the sailors did not stop the storm. They cried out, but still it remained, and they lost their hope of life, and fear remained, and it was Yahweh and Yahweh alone who stilled the storm so that they might live. What Jonah is saying here is an echo of what we find in Psalm 31. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. And so that parallelism that's there, pay regard to worthless idols, trust in the Lord, What it means to pay regard to is trust. And that's what we see here. That's what he's talking about. People who trust or cling to, pay regard to, give their attention to, retain or keep. They give this to empty nothingness. Because that's really what these two words refer to. Empty nothingness. Vanity. Vapor. There's no substance to these gods that people are clinging to. It's like trying to grasp air. But still, in foolishness, they try. We hear about this in Jeremiah 2, which Marty read for us already this morning. There's kind of that repeated sort of thing that goes there. We heard about the worthlessness, the emptiness of the idols that the people of of Israel had turned to. They had turned from the living spring of water and they had dug these broken cisterns for themselves, these cisterns that can't hold water. And there's a, there's a forfeiting of the living water for the fetid water which drains out. There's a loss of grace, a loss of steadfast love when one clings to the false gods of men. Idols are empty of reality. Idols are empty of power. Idols are empty of love. Idols are empty of comfort. Idols are empty of life. Precisely because they keep us from Christ, who has in Himself the fullness of reality, power, love, comfort, and life. That's the point. Now, of course, in His day, it was Baal and the other idols of the nations around them, which were often represented in little figurines that people might carry. These sailors probably had these little figurines. And when the storm is coming, they took them out from their clothing and plucked them down somewhere on the ship and began to bow down to them and pray and call upon the God represented by that little idol. Well, 
we don't find much of that today, thankfully. But in other parts of the world, you do. Okay? But I'm reminded in this 500th anniversary of the Reformation of the idols of Rome in particular. One of the things that they did is they held to what is called, and they still hold to this, it's called the treasury of merit. And what the treasury of merit is, is uh, all the people whose goodness exceeds the need, the, the goodness needed for salvation, their excess merit gets thrown into the treasury. So imagine uh, you needed $2,000 to get something. If you had $5,000, the other three would go into the common pot. Okay, something like that. So there's this common pot of, of obedience, shall we say, that, that, that is formed. Jesus has the, the, the majority of what's in there, but uh, for, for Roman Catholic theology, the saints also have contributed to this, not people like you and me, okay, the, the, the really good people. Okay. The question is, how do you get things out of the treasury of merit so that they then come to your credit so that you reduce your time in purgatory? Well, in Martin Luther's day, in his own town, for instance, in Wittenberg, there were collections of relics. And you would go and you would venerate the relic and there was a, a, a particular value given to the veneration of that particular relic and you could take, you know, a thousand years off your stay in purgatory by doing that. Martin Luther, like many, also went on pilgrimages, like to Rome, and uh, if you went up the steps of certain buildings as he did, praying along the way on your knees, going up the steps, that's so many years off of purgatory because you're taking merit out of the treasury of merit that Jesus and the saints have accrued. And, uh, of course, what really got Luther's attention with Tetzel was the selling of indulgences, the buying of merit. They created a system that separated people from Jesus Christ, offering salvation to them, but would really rob them of life. We see as well this idea of what's called implicit faith. The average person was not expected to read the Bible. They were expected to come receive the sacraments. And then, just whatever the church believes, you believe it too. You don't have to understand it, but to believe that which the church teaches. Implicit faith. And so, the church, in a sense, becomes your savior through the dispensing of grace with the sacraments and the believing of things for you. As opposed to you, yourself, believing those things. But this is not limited to Rome. If we think about our own day and our own nation and, our, and the church that lies within those boundaries, we see the idols of things like power, seeking after control in order to protect ourselves, to be able to say, my will be done, instead of saying, thy will be done. We see it present in people like Harvey Weinstein, who accumulated power so that he could abuse other people without any consequences. He got away with it for a long time. 
He's not the only one. So power is one of the many idols that people pursue. Self-righteousness is another one of these idols that somehow we think that if we're good enough, we put God into our debt. So God owes us instead of us owing God. And so we no longer have to say that humiliating thing, forgive us our sins. We can seek to accumulate wealth Wouldn't you just love to never have to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. And for most of us, that's sort of true. We have, you know, like my house right now. We have a refrigerator. We have the pantry. We have the chest freezer because we buy the, the, the bulk Zacon food. But now someone gave us a refrigerator that's also in our garage. We could live for a little while off this food, except that we moved all of it into one place. So anyway, we could live a while. But I remember a day when it was for our family, give us this day our daily bread. Because the money wasn't enough. And many of you have been in that position. Wouldn't you love to be free from that? And unfortunately, that's a false gospel. We can pursue wealth. There's never enough wealth. We can pursue pleasure to keep the pains of the world kind of at distance. We, we pursue food. We pursue drink. We pursue other pleasures so that we don't feel the pain of the world. I prayed about the opioid crisis earlier, and that's a lot of what drives the opioid crisis in our country. People who are fleeing from pain. Not just physical pain, but emotional and spiritual pain. It may numb it, but it won't take it away. The last one I'll mention is government. Some people think that if only their people, their tribe can get into power, then they will have the freedom or the health care or the security or the fill in the blank that they really want. And the important thing about this is that these things are all good, generally speaking. Self-righteousness is is an exception. Never good. But things like wealth and pleasure and government are, are not evil in and of themselves. But when we trust in them and they take the place of Jesus, they become very bad and rob us of life. When we trust in these things, we actually forsake the steadfast love that God has promised us in Christ Jesus the Son. And serving these rather empty idols produces much of the disobedience in our lives just as it produced the disobedience in Jonah's life. I have my theories on his idol. We'll get there later in a different sermon. But we see in Deuteronomy 28, when it talks about this thing, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you do undertake to do, and all that you yeah, undertake to do, until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. 
And if we read this backwards, it's the reality of because you have forsaken me, you have done evil deeds. Therefore, the curses of the covenant are coming upon you. And that is why you are confused and frustrated. God still does that. He still frustrates us when we disobey. We disobey because we forsake Him. His intention is to call us back. Not destroy us, but to call us back. We serve these idols sometimes because we think that Christ is not sufficient. Let's think of John Newton for a moment. I wish I could interview him. There's things in, in his biography that um, are, are there, but the, the rationale aren't there. And so I wish I would, that John Newton could sit here and I could ask him some questions because I have some theories. I put my Columbo hat on. Actually, he doesn't wear a hat. He wears his jacket. If I had a Columbo jacket, I would have put it on, my overcoat. John, you were known as an infamous blasphemer of God. Why? Was it because the mother you loved, the mother who taught you about me, God, the one who taught you about Christ, died when you were a child, such that you were now in the care of your father who was mostly at sea and who sent you off to extended relatives? Do you think you cannot trust me because your mother died? I wonder if that's really what was going on with Newton. Why he blasphemed God so was because he, he was angry at God because his mother died. I don't know. I'd love to talk to him and find out. But sometimes we do that. We're angry because God has not given us something we want or has taken away something we thought we needed and we rebel. And so giving our attention to empty idols keeps our hearts from Christ in whom there is life. Which brings us to our third thing, that salvation is God's to give in Christ. He makes this, this statement here at the end of his prayer uh, that sums up the message of the whole Bible. Okay? Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the whole point of the Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's His to give freely to whomever He wants. We see this played out again in places like Psalm 3. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And so this person makes a theological statement and then has an implication of it. Because it belongs to you, may blessing be upon your people. May you give them the salvation that they so desperately need. We see in Exodus 33, when God is about to appear before Moses, He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Everybody needs His mercy. Everybody needs His grace. There's no one that can put God in debt. And God is free to give it to whomever He chooses. His steadfast love, His commitment is not something that we earn by our faithfulness, that we earn by our goodness, that we earn by our buying of indulgences or paying tithes and offerings, whatever way you want to think about it. Salvation is not from our righteousness, but it is, as Luther said, because of an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own, not space creature, Christ's righteousness, imputed or accounted or credited to everyone who believes in Christ. It's not because of our self-righteousness because we see in Romans 5 that triad that uh, I love to bring up so much. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not the godly. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? And so, salvation is given to weak, ungodly people. It's given to sinners. It's given to enemies of God. Not people who have it mostly together and just need a little smidge of help. Salvation is an expression of God's faithfulness. Salvation is found in Christ alone and in His work in both His living in obedience, His dying, and His rising. That's what the, that's what the Reformation sought to restore to the church. Sola Christus. It's about Christ and what He has done, not you and what you have done, even your sin. The faithful God that is talked about here, Amittai, God is faithful. The faithful God forgives unfaithful people in Jesus Christ and by the Spirit begins to make them faithful. Justification, sanctification. Forgives us in justification, transforms us in sanctification. Both come because of our union with Jesus Christ. And so Paul is able to say things like, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. We see in First Timothy that we Marty read as well, that Christ came into this world to save sinners, among whom I am the worst, But we see that Jesus then found him faithful and made him an apostle to the Gentiles. The transformative power of grace. And so let's go back up to the 
top of this verse, before uh, Jonah says salvation belongs to the Lord, he says, in contrast to those who rely on or trust in these worthless idols, he says, I, (laughs) with a voice of thanksgiving, this is a thanksgiving psalm after all, his response is one of thanksgiving which reflects the sailor's response, a response he didn't know about because it took place after these events. But remember, the sailors at the end of chapter 1, they went to land, they made sacrifices, they took vows, they were thankful for because they called on the name of the Lord and He delivered And so what Jonah is going to do is essentially the same thing that they did. Even though he doesn't necessarily realize these Gentiles did it. And so, he offers a voice of thanksgiving. Are you saved? Then let your voice be heard. Raise your voice in thanksgiving to Him with joy. Not just in these four walls but also testify to the faithful and the unfaithful. He gave you grace that you might offer grace to others. And that's essentially what we see there in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He's made an apostle. He's an exam- God's grace to him was an example for others that God will be favorably disposed to them so believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to call people to that. Not just me, all of us, when we have opportunity. I'm not talking about going on a street corner and screaming it indiscriminately. But there are times when people in your life are in desperate straits, and that is the word they need to hear. We see this in First Timothy, uh, sorry, First Peter chapter two talks about how they're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Testify, Peter is saying. We see a similar thing in Philippians chapter 2 as they hold fast to the word of life amongst a a crooked and twisted generation as they shine as lights in the world that is filled with darkness. So we... We raise our voices with thanksgiving because of the salvation of the Lord. Because of the salvation of the Lord, we offer also offer our lives as sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans 12. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. I'm yours, Lord. Take me as I am. That's sort of the present tense of it. But we also see the, the future action of the, of the vows Jonah says he was going to keep his vows. Future action. Just like the sailors did. From my strange youth, which helps explain why I'm a little weird, I remember my parents took me to see the movie The End with Burt Reynolds, Sally Fields, and Dom DeLuise. It's not a movie I would recommend that you bring your children to. That he's a man who's severely depressed in the midst of his midlife crisis, who's uh, divorced and having an affair. And all, there's all kinds of sin going on in this movie. And he wants to die like Jonah. And eventually he swims into the ocean 
thinking that he will then drown and get his wish. And sort of like Jonah, it's there as he's on the brink of drowning that he realizes he wants to live. And that's what he says. I want to live. And so he begins to swim back. And he realizes that he's struggling. And he's saying, Lord, help me swim. Now all of a sudden he's calling on God. And he starts to make vows. I'm going to keep your commandments. He's trying to swim. But he can't remember the commandments. And so his vow has to change to, Lord, I'll learn the commandments. There's nothing wrong with vows as long as you make them to the right person and you make them for the right reason. Not to be saved like the monks did, but because you have tasted the goodness of the Lord in salvation and are saved. And so we see that salvation begins. We shift from the prayer to God's response. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. So while Jonah is is praying this prayer, the fish is already bringing him, or the whale is already bringing him to dry land. He doesn't know this, however. God is always already at work to accomplish this. And again, it's the word of the Lord that accomplishes the purposes of the Lord. He speaks to the fish and blah. But imagine how humiliating it would be to be part of the vomit of a fish. That's just something that doesn't get undone with a bath. But there's a reason, I think, that this exists. Remember, he was supposed to go to Nineveh. And in Nineveh, they would have these judicial trials or ordeals. And most famous of them was the water ordeal. And to determine your guilt or innocence, uh, they would take you and throw you into a body of water. If you sink, you're guilty. If you float like a duck, or you can swim... You're innocent. So what's going on here, in part, is Jonah is surviving a water ordeal and is going to go to the Assyrians and probably somewhere in in all of this proclamation it will become clear that he survived this water ordeal, that he is authenticated as a prophet amongst the Assyrians, so that his message is believed. In the same fashion, we have Jesus who underwent his water ordeal upon the cross. Who rose from the dead in triumph to show that he is God's salvation. Not just a messenger of it, but he himself is that salvation. And that his triumph is able to rescue us from the grave too. So he's to be believed in. 
rested upon, trusted. After nearly a month of floating on the Atlantic Ocean with John Newton, having returned to the faith of his youth, the lookouts on the Greyhound spotted land. And slowly they drifted to safety on shore before they all died. You see, there was this earthly deliverance for all of them, but eternal deliverance for some, including John Newton. But God was the one who provided both the earthly and the eternal deliverance. In His redemptive wrath, God strips us of those worthless idols that we want to cling to so desperately so that we can receive the real grace through faith in Christ. So are you still clinging to some of those worthless idols, those vapors? Or do you look to Christ for all that accompanies salvation as well as salvation itself? Let's pray. Father, we confess that uh, our hearts are, are still wayward. And that sometimes we, we look after these idols. We, we, we chase after these things thinking that we're going to get faith in them. Grant, Almighty God, that as You have once uh, given us an evidence of Your infinite power in Your servant Jonah, who, when he was almost sunk down into hell, You have yet raised to Yourself and have so supported with firm constancy that he ceased not to pray and call upon you. O grant that in the trials by which we must be daily exercised, that we may raise our minds upward to you and never cease to think that you are near us, and that when the signs of your wrath appear and when our sins thrust themselves before our eyes to drive us to despair, May we still constantly struggle and never surrender the hope of your mercy until, having finished all our contests, we may at length freely and fully give thanks to you and praise your infinite goodness such as we daily experience and that being conducted through continual trials, we may at last come into that blessed rest which is laid up for us in heaven through Christ our Lord. Amen.